Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and that is on page 1173 of the Church Bibles. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, page 1173. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good morning, everybody. As we begin, we're going to pray the prayer that we heard about last week in Ephesians Chapter 1. So shall we, shall we bow our heads and pray? Father, may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened this morning in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. There is a hike in eastern California which takes you from the lowest spot in North America to the highest point in the connected USA. Death Valley is 282 feet below sea level. Mount Whitney is 14,490 feet above sea level. And so hikers do what's called the lowest to the highest hike. It takes about a week to cover the 135 miles. If you don't have a week to spare, you can apply to be one of the 100 runners who run the ultramarathon there each year. And if you do the 135 miles in under 48 hours, you win a belt buckle. Yeah, <laughs> a buckle for your belt, you, yeah. I'm sure it's something to treasure alongside the swollen feet and the sunburnt head. Or perhaps the view from the top of Mount Whitney is really the thing to treasure. Listen to how one hiker describes it. On that sparkling day, we exulted in the panorama, all the way to the north and west, as far as we could see, the Sierra Nevada, and to the east, the mirages of the Mojave Desert, clear air, indigo and turquoise lakes below, and then the changing colour as vista upon vista unfolds around you. It feels like you're on top of the world. This journey from, from Death Valley to the peak at Mount Whitney can help us understand our passage this morning. It's a useful image of what Paul is describing here in these 10 verses. 
Before we get into them, just a brief recap. Last week, we looked at the last section of Ephesians 1, and we heard of the power that God has for us, for his church. We finished with a wonderful image of Christ. He is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name. In our verse this morning, we see his power in action for us. But Paul changes tact from chapter 1 and switches the focus from Christ to his readers. As for you, you were dead. What's the contrast? Paul goes from God's glory and Jesus' power and authority to, as for you, you were dead. That is contrasting here who Christ is and who we are without Christ. And he says we are dead. Paul's diagnosis for humankind, apart from Christ, spiritually stone-cold dead. Let's just think about the state of humankind for a moment. There are three different conclusions that you would come to if you were to reflect on humankind's spiritual state as a whole. These three conclusions would be that we are either well, we are sick, or we are dead. Now, some people might think that we're well. You know, spiritual doesn't matter too much, even if it exists at all. We're all just fine, or perhaps they might think that there's some kind of mystical force out there in the universe that will make sure that we are all okay in the end. Most people, I guess, would probably say that we're all a little bit sick. We're not who we're designed to be. Maybe some kind of spiritual forces out there, but with a bit of medicine, maybe some health, self-help here, or some discovering our identity here, we can manage our symptoms, and we'll all be okay in the end. But the Bible's clear. Spiritually, we're dead. The philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, he died in the 18, 1830s, and just before he died, he stipulated in his will that parts of his body, his, his skeleton, his head mainly, would be made into an image of him. And that's what happened. In a glass box at UCL, you can see an auto-icon of Jeremy sitting there, apparently thinking, the skeleton is his, the head is made of wax. On special occasions, Jeremy has been wheeled out into UCL board meetings, and someone announces that Jeremy is present, but not voting. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, of course not. He is, he's dead. He can't do anything. He's never going to to say anything, he's never going to raise his hand to vote. This is what Paul is saying the Ephesians were without Christ. Just, just dead. Dead men can't do anything. And so they could do nothing about their spiritual reality. Just like Jeremy is dead and can do nothing in a UCL board meeting. The Ephesians, unable to do anything, unable to trust God or his word. That's what spiritual death means. It also means separation from God. A chasm existed between them and God. Now, Paul's diagnosis was written to the Ephesians, but it's not just for the Ephesians. He's, com- he's covering all of humankind. Verse 3 says, all of us, all of us were the same. All of us lived among the dead. All of us lived in Death Valley. None of us had the desire, nor even the ability to be able to begin to hike out of it. Now at this point, it will be helpful for us to remember who Paul is speaking to in this letter. He's not trying to to win people over to Christ. He's not on an evangelistic mission. No, he's speaking to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. We read that 
a few weeks ago, verse 1, chapter 1. And so this morning, these verses are primarily for those who are followers of Christ. But if you do not follow Christ, please please listen in. These verses give, give you an insight, perhaps one of the best insights you can find on what it means to be a Christian and why I and, and we as a church hope you will see the beauty of God's power for you and choose also to trust in him. Now Paul is of course including himself in this diagnosis for humankind. All of us encapsulates everyone, doesn't it? He's saying, I, Paul, I was like that as well. And we know that Paul was a Pharisee before a Christian. He worked religiously to follow God's law and earn his favor. Yet he is included. Some in the Ephesian church were mystics. They were engaged in all kinds of sorcery. They too are included. See, whatever you were, whatever you believed, whether you grew up going to a good church, whether you grew up in an atheist home, your situation before Christ was the same. You were dead. Now let's be honest, these are hard words for many. Many may be offended when they hear this brutal assessment of of humankind apart from Christ, especially if they live what they see as a fulfilling life without God, helping others, doing good. Now that might be you this morning. But we can't escape the reality of the situation. In fact, Paul wants us to be very clear about the, re- the reality of our situation before we are joined with Christ. Because if we see the reality of life in Death Valley, well, the reality of what he's done to lift us out of Death Valley, Death Valley and raise us to the highest of heights becomes even more beautiful and clear and lovely. Perhaps it might help us this morning to think about why Paul says we are dead. And he gives us two reasons. Firstly, because of our transgressions and sins. He says we were dead in our transgressions and sins. What does transgressions mean? Well, it simply means that we we did things we knew we shouldn't. We saw where the line was and we deliberately went over it and did what we should not have done anyway. We're dead because of disobedience. And what about our sins? Well, that's missing the standard set by God, missing the mark, failing to hit the target, falling short. We knew how we wanted to live, and for some of us, we really did want to live in the right way. We may have tried very hard to do so, but but we found that we could not, sinners, all of us. Secondly, we were dead because we were enslaved. Verse 2 says, we followed the ways of the world. We were chained to the Christless age, as one writer puts it. We were chained to following a pattern of living which was different from and in opposition to the ways of God's people. Maybe we sought dishonest gain. Maybe we were proud. Maybe we were at best apathetic towards God, worldly. Our passage continues. We followed the way of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work. Paul is, of course, here speaking of the devil. We were enslaved by the devil. Why? Because he is at work in those who are disobedient, those who are dead. Now, what Paul isn't saying here is that everyone not in Christ is is controlled by the devil in a way that you'd call them demon-possessed. 
What he is saying is that everyone, and really without any of them ever knowing it, serves the devil as his master. Let's just take it back to near the start of the Bible to help us grasp this. When sin entered the world after the devil persuaded Adam and Eve to disobey God, we, all of us, were left serving the wrong master. Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of air, the kingdom of the air, the sphere between heaven and earth. His dominion is that sphere, and his aim is to direct all of our actions and thoughts away from God and away from heaven. So he stands between heaven and earth, and that's what he's doing. Now, Paul is, of course, here speaking to normal people. Their neighbors wouldn't have regarded them as, as the neighbors from hell. Even those who practiced sorcery in Ephesus probably weren't, wouldn't have been regarded as evil. Yet, we read in Acts chapter 19 about how when they heard the truth and the power of the gospel, many came openly and confessed their evil deeds. It was as though in doing that, that what they were and, and who their master was became clear to them. Now, it's, it, it's hard for those who don't believe in God or the spiritual to see their, their actions are directed away from God by the devil. They just wouldn't see that, would they? Yet those who do believe, well, it's not difficult to see the world's evil actions and the hand of the one who works tirelessly, tirelessly to enslave all humankind in opposition to God. The final thing we're enslaved to are the cravings of our flesh. Verse 3, we gratified the cravings of it and we followed its desires and thoughts. Just notice that Paul says we were following its desires and thoughts. It's far more than we might think of when we think of the flesh. You know, desires for money or, or popularity or more status or more fun or, or more sex. No, all these fleshly desires have taken roots in our, in our thoughts. They come from our thoughts, from our minds. Our minds were enslaved with thoughts contrary to God's thoughts. And we were so enslaved that we followed them. We could do nothing about it. Just We were utterly depraved. Dead because of our transgressions and sins. Dead because we're enslaved. This isn't a happy image, is it? It reminds me of the elephant graveyard in, in The Lion King. Just bones and darkness everywhere. Or perhaps more appropriately, the darkness of Ezekiel's vision. In Ezekiel chapter 37, he says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were dry. What an image. As Ezekiel walked round in his vision back and forth, he just found the marks of death everywhere. There was no life at all. And so what is the reality of being spiritually dead? What comes next? Well, Paul says at the end of Verse 3, like the, rest, so it's like the rest of humankind, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Deserving of wrath. Deserving of God's holy and righteous anger. God's holy and righteous anger is against sin. And if it is against sin, it is directed to those who are full of sin. Some find it difficult to think of God as angry with those that he has created. We would find it much 
easier to think of a God who is just loving and just forgiving and operates only in that way, only in the way that we want him to. Yet none of us operate in the way that we want him to. Don't we get angry when we hear of the injustices in our world? Don't we want evildoers to face justice for what they've done? Don't we want Putin to stand and be judged in the International Court of Justice for what he's doing in Ukraine? Yes, we do. But don't we also want to not face justice ourselves for the evil that we have done? When we commit the offence, when we are the guilty, well, then we want forgiveness. We don't want to face punishment. We want to be free. You see, we don't operate as we want God to. Because the truth is, the reality is, we would, much, we would be much better off having a judge who is, who is not like us, who is not tainted in any way by sin like we are, who, who sets perfect standards, whose judgment everyone accepts and trusts. But the problem is, with a judge like that, when we find such a judge, well, his verdict on us too is guilty. Like the rest, we fell short. Like the rest, we were deserving of his punishment. Now in these three verses, Paul has taken us into the depths of Death Valley. And he's holding up an old photo of ourselves. And he's saying, this is what you were. You were dead. You were sinners. You were enslaved. You were subject to the world and the evil one who had mastery over you. You were enslaved to your depraved flesh. You deserved absolutely nothing apart from God's wrath being poured out onto you. You, me, we, we all lived in Death Valley. And Death Valley is where we would have stayed. Just, just dry bones. And we could do nothing about it. Utterly hopeless. But. But. And could this possibly be the greatest but ever written? But for God's great love. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. We were made alive. This is, this is our resurrection. It's not a resuscitation or a revival. No, we were, we were dead. We were stone cold dead and we were made alive. And do you notice why God's done it? Two reasons. Firstly, because of his great love for us. There we were, just spiritually dead, hopeless, objects of wrath. And yet God loved us. His heart was bursting full of love towards us. Corpses. How, how can that be? You know, we walked in ways that were totally contrary to his. We rejected him as our master. Our flesh cry, craved anything and everything but him. I can't get away from this quote I found from John Owen. He said, God loves life into us. God loves life into us. Why? Why? Because he does. No wonder Charles Wesley wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Second reason, because he is rich in mercy. 
God in his holy and righteous anger would have every reason and be totally justified in pouring out his judgment on us. Psalm 75 says, No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down and he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. And this is what we deserved, God unleashing his judgment upon us. Yet, yet when his love rises, his mercy descends. Great love for us fills his heart and it overflows with mercy out onto us. And he was merciful by providing someone else, his son, our saviour, to drink that cup of foaming judgment down, down to its very dregs. So we didn't have to. And we are no longer objects of wrath. Yet it doesn't end there. Not only are we made alive, but we are also raised with Christ. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We're made alive, but we're not made immortal in this broken world. No, we're made alive and we're raised up spiritually to the heights of heaven, from, from Death Valley to the pinnacle. And we heard of God's power last week, how his power, the mighty strength that he exerted, raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. And now God is exerting his mighty power again, but this time for us. See, God has done for us spiritually now what he's done for Christ physically. Christ was raised from the dead and so are we. Christ was seated in the heavenly realms and so are we because we are joined with him. And in being raised with Christ, we are transformed from the mastery of the world and the devil and our flesh and we're given a new master, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who we are seated with in the heavenly realms Our sins and transgressions have no more power over us. And that is our reality now. And this is where now we can set our sights on. In a sense, of course, we're already there spiritually. But one day we will be there physically. Yet we're still here. We still live in this broken world. We're still yet to see Christ. But don't worry, the time is coming. Paul tells us in verse 7 that in the coming ages... He will show, God will show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness, in his kindness in Christ Jesus. Remember, Paul wrote this letter in around AD 60-ish, about 30 years after Jesus died and rose and then rose back up to heaven. And Paul is saying to the church here, in the ages to come, the age after you and the one after that, And the one after that, and so on and so forth, God will show the incomparable riches of his grace. And when Paul was writing, could he possibly have imagined that the gospel of Christ, which he took to the Gentiles, would spread around the whole world, such that there were Christians in every part of it? God has shown his riches in the ages since then to millions and millions. He's shown it to us, raising us, giving us the church, And yet there is more to come. We'll continue to see his riches in this age and the one after that and the ones after that until Christ comes and his kingdom is established, the final age. And one day God will take us, his church, his people, and as one author puts it, he will walk us through the wardrobe into Narnia 
and we will stand there paralyzed with joy and wonder and astonishment and relief. And they're the riches of his grace. The author continues, the very point of heaven is to enjoy God's grace in kindness. And there we'll be safe because the thing we fear will keep us out. Our sin can only heighten the spectacle of God's grace and kindness. His kindness. Let's not miss that little word. God's kindness to us. Because it tells us more, yet more of God's heart. Thomas Goodwin, listen to him, to how he speaks of God's kindness. He says, The word here implies all sweetness and all candidness and all friendliness and all heartedness and all goodness and with his whole heart. And that's the kindness of our God and of his grace. Verse 8 says, again, that it is grace that saved us. Stone cold, dead, we could not save ourselves. We've gone from, from the valley, from, from death valley up to the highest of heights. Now, now we stand on the pinnacle and survey what is below us and the spectacle of God's grace and kindness. And we have not done that by our own efforts, but by Christ alone. We haven't walked for days to climb out of death valley to the pinnacle because we couldn't. It's not by works. It's not from us. No, God has lifted us there. And it's by grace that we are saved. God's unmerited favor towards us. How are these verses meant to affect us? Well, if you're a Christian here, hopefully a reminder of what he has done, his great power for us, how the riches of his grace have been poured out upon us, shown to us, and also the joy of what is to come. But I wouldn't want you to leave here this morning just thinking, oh, because of the greatness of God's grace, I'm going to live my whole life in loving response to this. Because I'm, that means I'm going to do X and Y and Z. Well, that's not necessarily a, a bad response. But there is a risk that results in us thinking that salvation was all about grace. But what I do with salvation isn't a matter of grace. It's actually dependent on me. I, I must do something. Well, verse 10 protects us against that. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see God's grace here? It extends beyond just our resurrection. Yes, his grace resurrects us, yes, but it, but it also remakes us. We are his handiwork, and he is, he's changing us. He's making us love more and, and serve better. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works as an extension of his grace. So yes, let's respond with the desire to love and to serve. But let's also remember that we do so only because God's grace is still working in us as we do that. For those here this morning who are not Christians, can you see why we believe faith in Christ is good news? Paul says in verse 8 that by grace you are saved through faith. See, it requires faith. What does faith mean? It means more than just intellectual assent, more than just saying, yes, I believe that to be true. It requires trust as well. Simple equation. Belief plus trust trust equals faith. There was a a French daredevil who lived about 200 years ago whose nickname was Blondin. 
He was the first man to tightrope walk across the Niagara Falls. And the crowd went wild when he made it. And such was the excitement generated that he came back and did it again and again and again. And he developed all kinds of tricks just to make it more exciting. And one of his tricks was to, to piggyback a man across the tightrope. Don't sway. Don't lean at all. Otherwise, we will both perish, he said to the man. Well, he did it. And the story goes that there was a, a bystander there watching him who congratulated him. And Blondin said to this bystander, do you believe I can do it again? Well, yes, of course, they replied. I've just seen you do it. Okay, said Blondin. Jump on then. <laughs> no way. Not on your life, came the response. You see, the bystander had belief, but he did not have faith because he did not trust Blondin to keep him safe. Would you go on his back? No way. I wouldn't. For three reasons. Me, him, and chance. You see, I might sway when he didn't want me to. I might panic and cause, me, cause us to unbalance. Or he may have done this a lot, but everyone has his off days, and this could be his. Or there could be a huge gust of wind which just takes us clean off a rope. There was a chance, off the rope. There was a chance that that could happen. But what of Christ? Will you trust him to raise you and keep you safe? Faith is all you need. You might think there are three reasons why you cannot do that. You, him, and chance. You might think you are not worthy. Why would God love me? But, but we've seen that we're all in the, we were all in the same position. We were all in death valley and could do nothing about it. Our rescue does not depend upon us. It all depends on him. Well, what about him? Does he really want to lift me up out of death valley? Well, let me tell you that he has promised that if anyone comes to him, knocks on the door, asking for faith, he will answer it. He will never turn them away. And we've been thinking about his great love for us. And he's most clearly shown that in his, his love for us in sending Jesus to die for us so that, we, so that we do know and do know that God loves us. As Jesus was raised to life, he wants to reach down and raise you to life because of his great love for you. And thankfully, the third thing, chance does not factor into this equation because God is in charge of everything. No gusts of wind here to knock you off. God is in control and will keep you safe. And so you just need to say a simple prayer. God, I believe and trust in you. Please give me faith in Jesus so that he may raise me from death to life. Now, Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people, or inspire bored people, or spur on lazy people, or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. It's a great quote I found on this, and that's what we've heard of this morning. Remember Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. This is how it ends. The sovereign Lord says to these bones, I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, from death to life, from hopelessness to full of hope, from wandering the valley, to being seated in heaven, from sin to grace, from the devil's mastery to Christ's kingdom, we remember all that you have done for us. Father, your great power for us, 
your great love for us, the richness of your mercy, and we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.